Hello, neighbor. I'm Amanda O'Fox Gillespie, and I welcome you to Folk University's Friday Folk You Talk Show on CKTZ 89.5 FM and on the World Wide Web at CortezRadio.ca. Ever wondered what is Folk University? It is an experiment in slow learning. It is a question Can we create a more resilient, and enjoyable community simply by sharing what we already know with each other. Folk University is an opportunity for neighbors to share our ideas, our interests, our skills, and our passions with each other. And it is the only university where nobody ever graduates. Just a reminder that Cortez Radio and its board are not responsible for the opinions, the advice, the information, whatever you hear on the Folk You Talk show. And they don't have any money anyway, so don't bother suing them. Or me. Speaking of which, the radio station is doing a fundraiser. They've basically lost every single fundraising opportunity that they've had uh, this year, um, which is really disappointing for us who like to get up on stage and make fools of ourselves at the lip sync. Um, But it also means that we are in need of fundraising support. So... I've been wanting to do a talkathon where we just don't stop talking and we never play any good music until you donate. But since that doesn't seem to be what everybody else is going for, um, you can simply donate by PayPal, e-transfer, check or money order, um, and even cash. You can do this at the CortezRadio.ca website, or you can e-transfer to CortezRadio at gmail.com. Um and if you just sent a te- check to Cortez Radio, Cortez Island, probably we'd figure it out. All right. Um, I also want to let you know that next week on the Folk You Talk Show, we are going to have a very exciting guest. Perhaps one of my most asked for guests is coming. Are you confused about recycling? Well, Brian from the Recycling Center is going to be here next week to talk about our waste, about recycling, about where it's all going, what we can be doing better, um, on and on. So I'm really excited for that. I hope you'll tune in at 1 o'clock on Friday to hear him and call in with your questions. And that means today also at 250-935-0200. We can only answer your questions if you call and let us know what they are. You can get all past episodes of the Folk You Talk Show on our website at folkyou.ca. This is sort of a new update, so go and check out that website and all the new wonderful things that are happening there. Uh, Folk University has partnered with the Cortez Community Economic Development Association to offer a resilient enterprise training series. This is to help islanders grow their business skills and opportunities. On June 27th, there is a Business Planning 101 class. Don't miss out. These are really affordable, rich ways to grow your business skills. You can learn more or register at cced.ca. That's CETA's website. C-C-E-D-A? C-C-E-D.ca backslash events. Or if you can't remember that, you can look under the events tab at folkyou.ca and get there from there as well. So today, I'm really, that was a lot, a lot of announcements today. Um, I am pleased to have in the studio with me today, Adam McKenty from the Cortez Community Economic Development Association, aka CETA, uh, to talk about something very near and dear to small businesses, especially those on rural islands, and that is money. 
how to get to it to start a business, to grow a business. In particular, CETA is working to bring something called a community investment co-op to the island. Adam, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Amanda. Uh, this is interesting to do a folk you session on the radio. I feel like I need a sound effects machine to, to compensate for the lack of visual aids. Um, but we'll see how it goes. I'm, I'm looking forward to trying this this radio version of Folk University. It's, it, it, it is strange. I'm always looking out into my non-existent audience wanting like to see people. <laughs> but the positive thing is I get to ask as many questions as I want. And anybody who's been to a folk you knows that I you have, have lots of I, questions. I have lots of questions. Perfect. Well, I'm looking forward to that. So I thought maybe you could begin by giving us a little overview on what is a community investment co-op and why this could be so important for islands like Cortez. Right. That is a lot of what I have to to share. Um, I want to start. I'm I'm the 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 bigger picture of economics is kind of one of the things that I'm passionate about. I think that connects into this idea of what a community investment co-op is and why it could be important. So what I'm hoping to do is start by zooming way out, looking at big picture stuff. Then we'll look at big picture things about what what does investment mean and what role does it have in an economy. Um, and then we'll look at community investment and how investments can be brought back home to a place. And particularly, we'll look at this, this investment co-op model, which is becoming quite popular in British Columbia. And then... Finally, we will look at what we're what we're working on here on Cortez and how that might be um, might might support us in developing a really diverse, resilient, awesome island economy. How's that sound? It sounds awesome. Okay, I'm in. All right. And if you're not in, you can just turn off your radio. <laughs> So jump in with questions if you if you have them. Um, I've got a, a few things to say here, and then we can we can have a question period at the end, and you can take calls, and we'll see what what the island wants to hear about this topic. Um, so for starters, I want to zoom out from right here where we are in the radio station, surrounded by posters with microphones and and machinery. Imagine if we're just going up from here, we see Manson's Landing, we see Cortez Island, this green jewel in the Salish Sea where we're all blessed to live. We zoom out further, we see British Columbia, we see Vancouver Island, we see North America, and we see the world. So we go up to about 300,000 kilometers. We see the, the, the so-called blue marble. This is the, the jewel that, that Buzz Aldrin saw when he went up in the Apollo mission and and he was so overtaken by seeing the planet as this as almost this living object that he he came back to earth and started a whole bunch of nonprofit organizations to try and to try and figure out what what that meant and to help um, what he saw to 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 thrive so if we look at this closely we'll start to see flows there are flows that are obvious, like flows of um, air. The atmosphere is flowing around the globe. The oceans are flowing. Um, we can see flows also of humans. We can see migrations. We can see um, we can see the the moisture and and things that are circulating around the planet. We also see 
goods. We see massive volumes of, of products being packaged up and shipped across oceans. We see, we see oil and grain going into, going into freight cars and traveling across the country. And if we look more closely, if we look over a span of time, imagine that we could see this compressed. We could see the last 150 years compressed so it all played out in high speed. We would see changes in the planet. We would see forests giving way to, to crop fields. We would see the changes in the composition of the atmosphere as greenhouse gases increased. We would see ozone being depleted. Um, we would see mines cutting the top off of mountains. And these are visible changes. If we look at what is going on, we might, if we were, if we were an extraterrestrial looking at this, we might be puzzled. We might be like, why is this group of, of humans you know, digging a giant hole in the earth and, and, and scooping things out of it and refining it and putting it into a pipeline and shipping it to some other, some other continent or some other country. What is, what is going on here? Why is this happening? And what I want to draw our attention to is the invisible flow that, cro that goes the opposite direction of all of these flows of goods. And that is the flow of money. That's the global economy. Um, it's about $80 trillion per year that circulates, that's, that's driving this, this mechanism um, that's affecting, in many, in many ways, it's, it's, it's what keeps us fed, it's what keeps us housed and clothed, but it's also what is creating enormous damage to this, this kind of living creature that we're all part of, that is the earth. Now, if we look at that trend of, of increasing impact from these flows, and we look at the invisible flow of money that's, that's going in the opposite direction, that's driving this, we can see another trend. And that is that the economic loops that are part of this flow of money have been getting longer and longer. So it might have been the case 150 years ago that most of the money that was spent would only go you know, down the block, across the, across the town, um, maybe, maybe to another part of the province or, or whatever local jurisdiction one was spending the money in. But now those loops go across the globe. So if, I, if, we, if we zoom in from, our, from our, our kind of extraterrestrial perspective and look at, say, going into Vancouver and, and you go into a store and you purchase a, a telephone or a toothbrush or a tomato, who knows where that came from? And the money that I use to purchase that, who knows where that goes? So those dollars, they, they disappear into this thing we call the global economy. And then they're, they're distributed somewhere along the supply chain of the tomato or the telephone or the toothbrush. But what, all, what happens in there is completely invisible. And I can, be, you know, I can, I can have whatever ideas I have about my, my ecological ethics or my social ethics. But my money is off doing something else. And, and, you know, what that is isn't necessarily visible. Now, on Cortez, and in much of many of the places in British Columbia, I think, many of the people on Cortez, you know, this is not news to us. We know this. 
Like we know that the global economy is doing all these things. We know that where our money, you know, what we spend our money on matters. That there are these flows, there's these impacts across the world um, from the money that we spend on goods and services. Now, there is another flow of money that's even harder to see than what we spend on goods and services. And that is the flow of investments. Now, the money that we spend on goods and services is, it is what, it powers this flow of goods. Investment money powers the capacity to make the goods and services in the first place. So worldwide, the, the investment, the, the volume of investments is something like $300 trillion. And this is what, this is, this is what enables the, the capacity to, to cut off the top of a mountain and, and mine it, or the capacity to, to build a, a giant hydroelectric project, and the capacity to build a small business. So it's, a, it's, it's an enormously powerful two-edged sword. It is, the, it is the enabler of economic capacity in the world to a large degree. And this is why key uh, campaigns to end human rights abuses or to slow down climate change or to protect indigenous rights often focus on divestment, which is stop investing in the things that are damaging the earth or that are damaging people's lives. That's how powerful investment is. So on Cortez, we, we, this is a bit invisible, I think the power that investment has to create good, like to enable what we would like to see and to enable what we would not like to see or to enable things that are, that are harmful to, to humans and, and other form of life. So the, 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 and these are also invisible. So if I invest in RRSP, well, I don't know where that, if I invest in a mutual fund, I don't know where that is going what that's doing my money is working somewhere it's being put to some use and these investments like if you think about an investment in a in a startup it's a bit like a seed right so if i go and plant a bean that seed is, is a packet of of nutrients and energy and what it does is it allows that bean to to put out roots and to put out a shoot to, to produce leaves because the bean's not gonna, the bean's not gonna start receiving energy from the surrounding environment right away. This allows it to to build to build itself into a pretty chunky plant, and it's like it's 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 um, that packet allows it to grow until it's putting out leaves in its own profitable solar collector system, right? So this is a bit like uh, like how startup capital startup capital works and or or growth capital and of course in the, in the, the real eco economic world then that that also comes back perhaps with some return on investment to to for the service of providing the capital in the first place now you know that might be a um a bit of a flattering <laughs> description of investment capital but it is it is the potential right it is what money deployed well can do um, now, right now, if I have money to invest and I put it into some, some fund, you know, there might be doing a lot of things. It might be 
It might be building a pipeline through North Dakota. It might be uh, supporting Lockheed Martin to make missiles, or it might be you know funding uh, Goldman Sachs to lobby Congress against against financial regulations. So I might not know what it's doing, but there's one thing I can be pretty sure of, and that is that my investments are definitely not going to be put to work helping grow ethical, sustainable businesses where I live. That's, that's probably not happening if I invest in a, in a mutual fund. And there are a whole slew of reasons for that. But there are many people around the world who, who, are, who are noticing this and saying, what, if, what would happen if they could? Or what if we could invest locally? What if we could take these huge, hugely powerful flows of capital and take a tiny piece of that and put it into the place where we live and see what kinds of things we could make thrive? So that's kind of the background. You know, that's the, that's the big picture, which, of course, I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little addicted to the big picture. But I want to now talk about a few examples of where this has happened, um, starting with distant places, but then getting much more close to home because we're not the only small island that's thinking about community investment co-ops. Um, so, but I'm going to start with a distant spot, which is in Finhorn in Scotland. So I was in Finhorn last year for various reasons, and I kept noticing interesting things. For example, Finhorn has its own wind farm. And the, the wind turbines power the entire eco-village. And it's an eco-village that the population is about the same size as Cortez. They also have their own currency. They have, uh, when I was there, they were just opening a business hub that had a bunch of studio spaces, including a commercial kitchen, shared office space, um, like hot desks, as they say in... in in co-working, um, rental office spaces, super cool. Um, and I eventually found out that all of these things that I was noticing were connected. And there's something called the Ecopia Social Investments Limited, which has about a one million pound fund that they've raised through sales of shares in their co-op. And they're funding the, the they funded the wind farm they're, they bought uh, most of the natural food store and the, the uh, cafe and that were, that were faltering businesses and they brought them back to profitability. They've done affordable housing developments. Um, they've done a whole slew of, of really cool things. And their currency, they also run the local currency. And the currency itself is a form of investment. So if I want to go to Finhorn and, and buy some of this currency so I can use it in the shops, I have to pay in, in pounds sterling. And those pounds sterling go into a fund that, again, then get lo gets loaned out at low interest to local businesses. And the, the, the other th the upshot that they mentioned um, is that they actually save money, the businesses save money on not having to pay bank fees for the transactions that are using this local currency. Interesting side effect, which I wouldn't have guessed. So their co-op has about 250 members and they manage assets of about a, a million pounds, which is when it, when a ghastly exchange rate when I was there, that was about, it would be about 2 million Canadian dollars. Um, so super interesting example of what can happen 
just by a few bold individuals um, taking the initiative to make a structure that can... Sorry, my... Um, notes are about to disappear on my oh we're having we're having technical difficulties but but don't worry they won't last long <laughs> okay i think I'm, i think i'm set now um so yeah so this finhorn example is just it's a long ways from here but it's one of the most clear cases in my experience of how a community investment fund can really do awesome things like can do things that that it's hard to it's like the things that people would would dream about, but couldn't necessarily imagine actually happening. Um, and they were bold enough there to to pull it off. And I don't know what the regulatory framework is there and how that differs from here. Um, but so in Canada, moving slightly closer to home, the pioneer of this in Canada was Nova Scotia. So in about um, 1993, they started thinking about how do we get this massive amount of money that's going into RSPs and leaving our province, how do we get it back home? How do we, like, because they were facing rural depopulation and the collapse of resource industries and, and general economic, uh, like a dim horizon economically. So they, in, over the course of about seven years of, of politics, they, they rolled out this, this um, Community Economic Devel Development Investment Fr Fund, or CDF program, which had a few key aspects, one of which was a tax break for people who invested in these CDFs. Um, and that took off, and now they have, there are about something like 70 of these CDFs in Nova Scotia, which are local, a, a local investment fund, often a co-op, sometimes a corporation, Sometimes they'll be for one particular uh, enterprise, sometimes multiple enterprises, and they're the, in total they're managing about 80 million Canadian dollars in investments throughout the province. And, and even though it costs the province a lot to, to give this tax break, in, when they evaluated the program 10 years in, it was... A net benefit to the province, to the economy, and to the government because they were able to to use this mechanism to kickstart a whole bunch of economic vitality in local local places. And they have they have um, so the, the success rate of the enterprises that these CDFs are invested in is about ninety percent, which is way higher than something like thirty six percent success rate for small medium-sized enterprises overall and this is kind of the um there are a variety of ways that you could explain this but um part of it is the the nature of local investing because when your neighbors are investing in a business through a structure that's controlled locally everyone is motivated for this business to succeed because there's skin in the game from a bunch of different places within your local region. So, and, and the key thing about the Nova Scotia example is also that the, that the government support is really important. And it's something that's, that's um, not there to the extent that it is in other places in British Columbia yet, although there's a bunch of people lobbying for it. So uh, coming west from there, 
Um, there are a couple of examples in Alberta that are that are pretty interesting. In 2010, the Canadian National Railroad decided that a lot of the small lines in Alberta that were that were um, providing transport for grain farmers primarily were not profitable and they were going to be shut down and sold for scrap. So they're, they're selling the rail, the actual um, rails for scrap metal. So one line in the Battle River area, they they put it up for sale and there was a bid from a, a scrapping company in in Salt Lake City for about four and a half million. And the the local farmers said, what are we going to do? Like we're, we use this railroad to transport our grain. We can't let it disappear and be sold for scrap. So they got together and they formed a cooperative and they raised money from the local farmers and they bought the railroad. So they now run the Battle River Railroad and it's serving about five communities in this very rural part of Alberta and they're running it as a, a profitable business. And they have now, they now have also a, um, a volunteer group that has a passenger car that they run on this railroad as well, eight times a year. They do a run all up and down and they have events, um, events along the line in the different towns. So they're kind of bringing in this tourism piece. But it's, it's really interesting example because not only did they raise a, a pretty substantial chunk of money to buy this, but they're able, you know, you would think that CN... It's got a bit of an experiment experience with running railroads. You'd think that they would know how to run a railroad profitably, probably considerably better than a bunch of farmers. But instead, what's happened is a, a non, an unprofitable piece of uh, rail track for CN, CN has become a profitable business when managed by the community. Um, and it's able to give you know, good transport rates to farmers and they, they work with the farmers to make it smooth to get the grain loaded on and, and things like this. So it's an interesting example of how uh, community investment can, can be savvy with business when there's motivation locally to do a good job of it. And another example in, in Alberta, the in Sangundo, Sangudo, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but this is a tiny hamlet of about uh, 300 people. It, it actually lost its town status uh, a few years back and is now officially a hamlet. But they were also facing like dire economic straits, as a lot of small towns in Alberta are. Um, and they had, a, I believe it was... They, they went through various steps of this, but they, the, there was a meat processing, a local meat processor, um, and the owner was going to retire, and this was just one more blow to their local economy, and they lost their high school and, and things like this. So they got together and they said, we've got to do something about this, kind of like in, in Battle River. They formed a co-op. Um, they raised something like, 700,000 and they started by buying the meat processor which became a profitable business with a new a new um, or, or funding the purchase of the meat processor for, by a, a younger entrepreneur and then they have um, yeah a whole bunch of other projects 
that they're that they're running that their co-op has something like 40 members and <coughs> yeah and investments from about 3000 to 50000 per member so they've been able to to quite revitalize some of the you know to take what was a an uh, really tough situation economically for a town and use this mechanism to to start bring it back to life so this is yeah this is another example of how the the community can come together and when you have this knowledge of of your local business environment and you have knowledge of the people in your community you can make investments that are that are much better informed than investments in, you know, uh, like if you were running a venture fund and you had to, you had to be deciding what companies to invest in with no context and with no, you know, with no neighborhood, like not people that you're going to bump into at the co-op. When you understand where their what their position is in the community and how they work. So getting further west <laughs> close to close we're, we're getting there i'm getting closer to cortez um jump in manda if you if you have questions or want to speed me up a little bit i get excited about these things so i can talk on and on um i'm saving up my questions saving up your questions okay i'll, I'll look forward to that you'll roll them all out at once and, and then i'll be buried um so in british columbia the situation is a little bit different. The the um, you might think that with all these inspiring examples from around the world that we that community investment would have been happening here for a long time. Like why why not right? Um, why you just recruit some people with money and put it in a pot and start investing in businesses? But there's this thing called securities regulations, which. Uh, which are there for a reason. Um, you know, the, the, the securities fraud is, you know, big business. And uh, the regulations are there to protect investors from getting hoodwinked by people who are, you know, selling the idea of a bunch of returns on an investment that actually doesn't have substance. <coughs> this means that you're not, allowed to just start an investment fund and get people to invest in it particularly if you're in a, a small community where you're you're seeking investors that are not professional investors that don't have huge funds to invest so under the security regulation in british columbia and most other places there are two categories if you're if you are well endowed and um and kind of know the ropes of investment you're an, an accredited investor and, and the, the rules don't apply to you because you are expected to know what you're doing you know if you if you uh, invest in a dodgy company and it goes bust well sorry you know you're you have the resources you have the experience you should be able to you should have been able to detect that but for for anyone else an investment project is not allowed to offer an investment to ordinary folks without an enormously complicated mountain of paperwork and legal fees and accounting fees in order to do what's called a prospectus, which is 
what you the, the hoops that you have to go through in order to prove that you're being honest with your investment offer and that you're not going to defraud people of money. And these rules are there for a reason. I, I raised my hand mm. <laughs> and Adam looked at me like you in the back row. Um, so can, can you also speak a little bit about, so I knew that we had some of these rules in Canada and they differed from like, for instance, the U.S., but what I didn't realize is that these also differ, it sounds like, from province to province. So can you throw in a little bit about what you know about um, about the provincially different aspects of these rules, too? Yes. Yeah. Um, so I'm not a lawyer, obviously, and neither am I an investor. I'm just a curious person from Cortez. But what I have been able to determine is that there are there are securities regulations at various levels, but there is a BC Securities Commission, and there are, the rules are province specific. Now in Nova Scotia, they made an exemption for these CDFs, which was specifically targeted to allow community investment funds, and they waived a bunch of the requirements, and there, and there are limitations on that, so the limitations on how much an ind individual can invest, and limitations on what the total size is, and various other things to keep it within that community investment container where, where the regulators felt it was okay to allow this to happen. And the, the same thing exists in Alberta. Um, I believe PEI has something similar, so there's various provinces that, that are doing this, because they've realized that, that this is a model that can help, particularly in rural areas. Now, in British Columbia, there is, to my knowledge, not yet an exemption for community investment. However, clever people have figured out how to, to work with this because there is an exemption for co-ops. Because if you form a co-op... You need to, you know, you need to raise money from your members. So if you're doing, if you're a worker co-op or if you're a, if you're a producer co-op, marketing co-op, whatever, you might need to, to, to capitalize your business by selling membership shares or, or even selling investment shares. So within certain parameters, you can create a co-op that falls under the Cooperative Association Act, which is the same act that governs, say, the, the Cortez Natural Food Co-op or any of the other co-ops on the island or elsewhere, and you can use that as an investment vehicle. So there are, there are limitations on it um, for what are called retail investors, which is anyone who's not one of those accredited investors. You can only invest a maximum of $5,000 per person. Um, there are restrictions on when you can invest in, in relation to when you became a member. So if you're not a founding member, then you have to wait a year before you can buy investment shares. Um, and there's a limitation on the total number of memberships that can be issued under this exemption. So the, the Community Investment um, Impact Investment Coalition in British Columbia is lobbying quite actively for the province to change these rules a bit to to be more lenient um, and to allow to, to increase the, the, the maximum investment per person and remove the one-year waiting period and so forth. But one thing is that the, the community investment co-ops have been very creative about, um, about using this model but also having flexible mechanisms that, that kind of get around some of the, some of the limitations. Uh, for example, if you have a mixture of 
retail investors and accredited investors, then you can you can increase the total amount that you raise with that combination because accredited investors are still allowed to invest in a co-op um, at higher rates from retail investors. So there, I'll I'll uh, before we get to questions, I promise we're approaching the end of this. Um, there are some interesting examples in BC. The in the Kootenays they have something like three different community investment co-ops. They've been really active there. They were sort of the pioneers. And actually, the Kootenay Employment Services um, has been has been industrious about producing documentation of the community investment co-op model. So they have this 300-page instruction manual for setting up a community investment co-op. And it includes uh, samples of every sort of document you could need. So it includes samples of the rules of association, the memorandum of association, your your agreements for for taking investors, um, even marketing materials and, and like brand sheets. And, and they've, just, they've just gone totally overboard. And it's one of the cool things about co-ops right the the seven cooperative principles and i think it's the the sixth principle is that co-ops will help other co-ops so in the community investment world this has been quite evident and and it's really important because this is not a simple thing to figure out how to build this structure so we'll get to this in a sec but the the advantage for cortez is that there are existing examples that we can kind of cotton paste from almost um so yeah so the cre- in creston they they have about two hundred sixty two thousand dollars in investments in the community um <clears throat> there's in getting to the islands there's a, a co-op on salt spring and this co-op was founded by the or, or came out of transition salt spring which is their their it's part of the transition towns movement. So their mandate is really to to localize and to reduce environmental impacts and and climate change impacts. And they started this investment co-op because they realized that they needed a way to fund the kinds of things they wanted to see happen in the community for reducing um, carbon emissions primarily. So alternative energy and and uh, retrofits of various kinds, and they have a combination of um, loans. They do rather than selling shares, they do loans between investors and projects. So it's project specific, and then they also have what they call a climate action fund, which is just a pool that they can make small small loans to projects out of. Um, there's also a a, a relatively new community investment co-op on Gabriola moving north north gradually approaching Cortez um and they I I think they were founded uh just a couple years ago they did a very successful investment in a community affordable housing project which has already been paid back um ahead of schedule and uh, key point that that I've heard from many people. So I've had conversations with a bunch of the the founders and board members of these co-ops as I've been researching it and, and then emails with a bunch more and there's a, there's a coalition. So it's easy to find them, but they, 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 um, the challenges they run into are almost the inverse of 
of what you would maybe expect with an investment fund. So an investment fund, like there's the raising the capital and there's placing it in businesses and, and typically the businesses want it. They're, they're, you know, they're pitching for investment and you have to turn them away and, and then you have to make sure that they don't fail because a lot of them are high risk and they, and they might, you know, their, their product might not work out. They're, all sorts of things could go wrong and you have to be careful not to lose the money. And of course you have to do that with an investment co-op too. But when I've spoken to the people on SaltSpring and on Gabriola particularly, they have almost the reverse problem, which is that they raise money quite quickly because it's so obvious that this is a valuable thing to do. The struggle that they've had is, is finding the things to invest in. And they've also had, uh, I haven't, yet i've been looking but i haven't yet found an example in bc co-ops where a business has failed to repay the investment um it might be there and then i just haven't found it but uh i've been i've been looking for it because we're trying to find like what what's gone wrong and and how can we avoid that so so it seems to be that the the cics have found fairly reliable investments but it's difficult to get entrepreneurs in some cases through the process of business planning and and being ready to invest um, and there's some dropout in that in that process on Gabriola. So there have been a couple of CICs that have folded in BC. Um, there's one called the Knives and Forks Community Investment Co-op, which was intended towards um, investing in food projects. And I haven't spoken to anyone from that co-op to ascertain exactly what happened. I think they... It's not that the, that the fund failed, but that they found that the, you know, they weren't getting enough investors to make it kind of viable at the scale that they were looking for. And the Vancouver Island Investment Co-op was also founded um, not too long ago, a couple, a, a year and a half with a, with a grant from the Vancouver Foundation. And they, they still exist, but they, they're sort of on pause um, and I think the the lesson that I've heard about these is that they're they're not specific enough to a location. So this was trying to serve the entire Vancouver Island or Southern Vancouver Island, um, and the knives and forks was 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 dealing with food as a as a topic, but not in a specific location. So I think it's from what I've heard, it's key that there's that geographic buy-in. So um, that brings us all the way up to Georgia Strait, <laughs> to here, <laughs> to Cortez. Um, we have, uh, it, it's pretty clear from the LEAP report and from a lot of conversations that we've had that the will on Cortez appears to be not to become more dependent on tourism as economy. We want to diversify. We want, people on Cortez want us to be able to produce food, to produce energy, uh, to, to produce value-added products, to produce innovative, creative things that islanders love to invent and make and share with the world. And these are, these are our gifts that we, you know, that we want to, to be working on rather than you know, becoming more and more dependent on tourism. So, we, yeah, we want to have, in, in order for this to happen, we need a way for capital to flow into these businesses. 
we need a way to, to, to provide that seed so that when someone has an idea, they, they have time and attention and focus to, to, get the, to get the leaves into the sunlight and build a profitable enterprise um, without worrying, you know, how they're going to pay the next, pay the next bill, right? So this is how, this is how startup capital works. Um, and we, 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 we need ways to have money serve us rather than us serving money, right? Um, so it's clear that this is, this is a piece of the puzzle of what we're trying to do at CETA of, of fostering a resilient, sustainable, fulfilling um, economy that we can all be excited about, right? That we can be doing what we love and what we want to do to, to serve each other and to serve the world and to build a, an island that's, you know, that we can enjoy and perhaps be proud of or share as, you know, a way that things can be done. And um, based on the national average of investments among Canadians, um, if you if you took the 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 average value of investments based on the population of Cortez, that would be about fifteen million dollars of investments owned by people here. Now, I think based on our demographics, that it's probably much much higher than that. Um, I think we have we have a a mix of people here that has resources, and and there's also um a strength of connection to place here that I think really is an advantage for us. So what could we do if we bring some of that productive money that's invested elsewhere home to the island? So where we're at right now, we, we've, we've been researching this model. We've been talking about it on CETA's working group. We have, um, we're, we have drafts of our incorporation documents that we're working on. Um, we're taking a very lean approach because the because this model has been done elsewhere. We're trying to learn every can, what we can about it and then copy what we can, so we don't have to have a, a lot of legal fees and a very long process to to determine you know, what kind of structure we need. Um, and we're we're starting to reach out to potential investors and and think about um, what kinds of investments might be possible or who might be in the in the island entrepreneurial ecosystem who could be be ready for some investment in the near term so there are always you know, there are always risks with this sort of thing anything that's that's innovative or that's uh you know, pushing the edge a little bit um, but we're trying to be cautious about that knowing that you know learn from what other co-ops have encountered particularly we we are putting this into the context of a much larger effort to support the entrepreneurial ecosystem on the island. So it's not, uh, it's not out of the blue. It's not um, all on its own. We have, we're going to have training and, and kind of be facilitating the whole, um, yeah, the whole ecosystem. And this is a piece of it to be able to put, to, to be able to get the capital there. And we're also, one of the challenges with community investment co-ops is the overhead because the typically the the co-op itself is extremely lean particularly on other islands like it's it's run by volunteers and the, the biggest expenses are like their 
their their director's insurance, their um, bookkeeping fees, and their bank charges. Believe it or not, the, on Gabriola, they were running their investment co-op so lean that, that one of their biggest expenses was the bank charges for having a bank account. So we are we are we have CETA, which is an advantage because we're hoping to pair some of those costs and make it um, have the the relationship between the two entities help us to to make it um, as you know, to give it support. So there's I think there's extraordinary potential here. Um, we have on Cortez, we have some of the leading social enterprise people, um, certainly in BC, possibly in Canada, possibly in the world, um, right here. Like we have the Social Venture Institute that Hollyhock does each year. Um, we have people with a great affection for place. I think we also have the advantage of a relatively integrated community where the kinds of folks who would be starting the businesses are, are bumping up against the, the kinds of folks who would be funding the businesses at the co-op all the time. So, there, so there's a really um, po- somewhat unique, probably it exists on other islands as well, but we have a, a fabric here that I think is very well suited to this kind of community investment project and process. So I've, I've managed to almost talk for an hour, which is shocking to me. Um, maybe I could, maybe I could end this portion on, on a kind of a philosophical note, the zoom back out for a sec. Um, if we think about these flows of the, the economic flows in the world and the global economy and the, the Canadian economy and British Columbia economy, these impact Cortez. There's no way we can get away from that. We are tied in. Um, they impact things like the price of land and they impact the cost of production and how competitive we can be. Like Cortez used to be a, a big exporter of food, of fruit, but it's hard to compete in, in a mechanized global economy where, where things travel enormous distances and, and costs are completely warped by fossil fuels and and externalization of costs that otherwise would be included. So we're, we're subject to this, but we have a choice. We can either ignore those economic flows that are driving things and driving things on Cortez, or as a community, we can learn how they work and we can start making our own choices about how we, you know, how we interact with this thing. And either either we're at the mercy of larger economic forces or we start understanding how money and economics and investment works and we put it to use on our own terms for the benefit of the island that we want to live on. And this, I think, is this is economic sovereignty. Um, that's real localization and and resilience. And so creating this mechanism to localize capital is part of that. And we're lucky that it, I guess the CETA board has some ambitious, experienced people, um, and we're willing to, you know, say let's let's do this, let's make it happen. So that's what we're up to. 
I have tons of questions because I'm so excited by this idea. But this is the really exciting part of Folk You Radio, where you, dear listener, wherever you are in the world, because we are on the radio, get to call in and ask your questions. So in just a couple minutes, I will put on some music, which means that then my hands are free to answer the phone when you call in, which is always really complicated. Um, So please do call in and ask your questions. We've been listening to Adam McKinty talk about community investment co-ops and what that might mean for bringing money to small businesses and entrepreneurial entrepreneurial enterprises on Cortez um, and the surrounding islands or even in your community if you are listening from somewhere else. We'd love to hear from you and how this might make your life easier, um, more difficult questions about how you might be able to get involved with this or just share your experiences with trying to start enterprises um, in your community. We'd love to hear from you at 250-935-0200. This is Folk You Talk Show on CKTZ 89.5 FM. Cortez Community Radio. So please go ahead and give us a call at 250-935-0200. You could also try if you're shy, but you don't go straight on the radio, so don't worry. You just talk to me um, or Adam. Um, but you can also try emailing at you at folkyou.ca. And depending on how many calls and that kind of thing, sometimes I actually check my email. Um, here too. So here we go. If all goes well, I will be playing music for you. Money, money related music.
certainly wasn't the right. Hello, Cortez and surrounding islands um, and areas. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. This is the Folk University Talk Show, Folk U Talk Show. And today we are really lucky to have Adam McKenty talking about community investment co-ops and how this could bring money and resources onto our island for enterprises. We, you did a good job, neighbors. We got some calls over the break, and the and I'm going to do my best to paraphrase, but um, one of the callers was specifically asking about the pandemic and what the pandemic especially is is going to mean for community investments for small businesses and how you're hoping or what you what you guys think as a board um, about the community investment co-op type model and other community funds as a way to help us survive and maybe even thrive through these challenging times. Right. It's a really good question. Um, I think the in the in the bigger picture the the whole pandemic situation has has kind of lit a fire under the projects that CEDA was already intending to do because it, it so much highlights how important it is to have a diverse localized economy, you know, to be not dependent on one thing or another thing um, and to be able to produce more of the things that we need here. And the, the, the community investment co-op project is definitely part of that um, because, you know, we need, we need to be able to support people to do, to, to shift, to transition um, to other kinds of industries and businesses. Now, in, in the, on other islands, for example, the, the Gabriola community investment co-op, which is up and running, has, has done some interesting things in relation to covid they actually found um, a funder that was willing to cover interest costs. So they're doing uh, fast turnaround, zero interest loans from the community investment co-op for business survival and transition and helping local businesses to, to be able to make it through and to be able to pivot in the ways that they have to in order to, to survive and potentially thrive and, and to be positioned for whatever that new normal is that, that, that nobody quite knows. Um, so, so it's, it's, I think it's timely, um, in a bunch of ways, partly because of the, the impact on tourism also, because this might be a time when people are thinking about, you know, what, you know, if I'm if I'm not uh, running around this summer quite as much as I normally am, or this spring, what are the what are those those business ideas? What are those plans? Those 
concepts, those dreams that I might be um, getting ready to move forward on. So I think that in a, in a, you know, to what it, to whatever extent we can we can see some pieces of this and possibly you know, a more positive light, it does perhaps encourage us to reorient our economy a little bit and and maybe people are thinking i think it's it's clear that there is um that the intention is there to shift the cortez economy a little bit or to to at least explore that and there's been a lot of conversation about resilience and about food security and about how you know how these pieces can come together to create a, an island that's better able to withstand things like COVID-19 um, or disruptions due to climate change, which many people think are on the horizon or ongoing financial issues um, related to the pandemic or other things that, that might impact the global economy in ways that we are not really prepared for. So the Community Investment Co-op is just one piece of a much bigger um, kind of suite of, of tools we're hoping to use to help with this. But I think it's an important piece. Um, yeah, I hope that answers the question. Well, since somebody else asked, <laughs> I think it does. And that seems really um, inspiring. And I think if nothing else, it's become really clear to a lot of people that um, that uh, these flows that you talked about at the beginning, these large flows, um, that that they are not with they're not f fail proof like it, there is we really in our generation i feel like we've really seen that this the development and then the um dispelling of this myth that things are too big to fail and i i just think like well, okay we understand now that indeed not only are things not too big to fail particularly when it comes to um economic flows but that uh that that the world is moving towards needing to have more localized, um, you know, which is which is the way it used to be for a long time, lo localized money, localized control, uh, that kind of thing. So I love these specific models. So I love specific models, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about something that um, comes up a lot, which is on this island, and I think this is true on many islands, there is a real obvious um, lack of like n the next generation coming up not I don't think because they're not there but you know I look around at a lot of the businesses that I rely on on this island and a lot of the services that I rely on and and the people are anywhere from their mid-50s to 80 80 and still running chainsaws and running mills and it's fantastic because if you live here you might be strong enough to do these things into your 80s but they might be ready one of these days to actually retire and I heard you mention that one of the benefits of the community investment co-op model or fund having local community funds available for businesses is to help with succession so I'm wondering how might this help here with all these businesses that the people might really like to be able to sell their business and retire mm -hmm. good question um and i think that in other community investment co-op examples like certainly in alberta that was one of the that was one of the key drivers for the development of the co-op is have a way to finance business succession 
And it's something that we've been discussing among the CETA board. Um, and also Lonnie, who's been heading up our food security project, is working on grant applications that include support versus succession for business succession. So being able to play a bit of a facilitator role to say that here's this critical business on the island. Um, the, the owner is ready to move on or will be soon. What can we do? How can we find, how can we help find people who or a person or a, or a crew who's ready to take that on? And then how can we facilitate that financial transition? And there are lots of ways that that can happen, but the, the community investment co-op is definitely a piece of that because in many cases, the younger people who we would love to see taking on some of these businesses won't necessarily have the capital to buy them. And the, and the older people would, would probably love to hand their business off to somebody who would run it, but it's, they need to get their savings out of that to be able to, you know, to retire. So the great thing about an existing business is that there's a financial track record there and there's a, there's a customer base and we can easily see how it's doing and, and can, can look at what, what it might, what might need to change, but also it it provides a, a pretty good baseline of information so that the investment committee that would likely be making decisions on behalf of the community investment co-op would be able to have some pretty solid information to start with to think about could we fund this new entrepreneur to take on this business and would it be viable enough to pay back that money and and ultimately to pay back the investors in the co-op so i think that the answer is a big yes basically to the idea of using this to to help with business transition and succession on the island um, I think there are other pieces in addition to uh, an investment co-op that would be needed in order to to make these transitions happen smoothly, um, and that might include actually being able to you know to to kind of look at what the opportunity is and see who on island or or off island would be willing to take that on, um, and with 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 financial facilitation from a community investment co-op or a mixture of community investment and other other kinds of financing. So could we also talk this through if, say, um, you're a mechanic on the island, um, if you're working on this island and you have any mechanical skills, you're really busy, everybody needs you, um, but if you actually had a car that needed a new transmission or something, it wouldn't be obviously worth your time to do here because we have no garage uh it's almost impossible to without a garage have the equipment that gets a car up safely so that you can work underneath it would that person um be like or at what point would that person perhaps come to you and what would the process look like to try to get investment from um, a community investment co-op so we i can't give an authoritative answer on this because we're still, you know, we're still putting the pieces of the structure together. But what I can say is how this works in a lot of other community investment co-ops and how I would expect that it would work to some extent here. So most investment co-ops have, um, have an investment committee, which is typically a committee of a combination of board members of the co-op and knowledgeable business people and people with the right mix of experience from the island. 
So the basics of the structure would be that the the, the potential investee, the business person, would would um, make their business make their pitch to this in, the investment committee, and if it was determined to be a, a, a sound investment, that the that the numbers were there, that the people were there, that the market was there, that the the business was was going to succeed, the inv- investment committee would approve the investment but that is a that's just the that's just the the mechanics of how that piece happens i think on cortez like on many other islands and and small communities you would have a much longer on-ramp to that that might involve a process of of business planning training and support so we're working at CETA we're we're about to be wrapping up a pilot of business training workshops, and that's going to be rolled out on a different scale later in the year. So we'll, we're hoping to do kind of a cohort of folks who are interested in developing a business, and we'll help them through the stages of it with instructors from on-island and off-island and mentorship and, and peer learning so that people who are starting and running businesses on Cortez can kind of help each other. Um, so so the, this investment piece including the pitch and approval is embedded in a much bigger process so it might be that the the mechanic you're describing would have this this idea of hey you know i could get if i could get a shop together i could scale up my business and i could provide better service to people on the island and and um, given the 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 situation with mechanic services on island how short how much in short supply that has been historically i think this would be a you know, this would be a, a pretty savvy business investment and in, you know under a lot of ways that that could look um but it might be that they would come to the co-op and say oh, this is what i want to do and the co-op would say okay that's great here are the steps that you can go through to validate your business model for this expansion and to and to ask yourself the questions and you know inspect your business and, and say what how, how does this make sense what does the plan look like how much financing do i do i need um how how long will it take for that to to pay back etc and so, so to build the business plan and then it might be that that person then, then comes back to the co-op later and says okay here's the plan and then the co-op says good We'll, we'll support that. And the, the mentorship goes on from there. So one of the big strengths of these community investment co-ops, and I think this is, this is going to be really, really strong on Cortez, is to be able to support those entrepreneurs as they go through the process, both before they get investment and then afterward, to make sure that that investment works out. And that's to everyone's benefit, right? Like, it's to the benefit of the the customers who want that service to exist. It's to the benefit of the business owner. It's to the benefit of the co-op, and it's to the benefit of the investors. And the neat thing about a place like Cortez is all those people are are economically linked. So the people who are going to that mechanic, you know, some of those will probably be people who have invested in the co-op, whose money is actually, you know. In, in the mechanic shop. So this gives a kind of um, uh, a, a fabric, I think is, is one way to describe it, or uh, 
a, uh, a web of support around a business, which I think is is why the the default rate on community investment co-ops tends to be very low. So can we talk a little bit about um, community community investment co-ops then from the investor perspective? Um, I get really excited about this because having spent uh, a lifetime in work that is basically for social profit, um, that doesn't necessarily make as much as being in work that's not, but it's always meant that I've, um, even when I've had little amounts of money that I could invest, I've never been, like, I've never been able to invest. I've never had enough to become a certified investor. Um, So all I have are these sort of little amounts and people are like, put them in mutual funds. But I've done a lot of research into mutual funds. And even the greenest, greenest, most carbon aware ethical funds are heavily invested in things, for instance, like fish farms, or um, some of them in the past have been like in soda pop. Tons of them are invested in uh, in the tar sands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, just sort of was like, okay, well, if I spent my life making less money because I cared so much about the work that I was doing in the world, I couldn't ever bring myself to invest um, in in this. So it just sort of sits there, um, you know, and or I spend it. (laughs) My kid, I'm going to invest it in my children. Um, So what would this mean from an investor perspective? How, like, I, I'll get some sort of return. When will I get that return? How safe is it? Tell me more. Well, so like uh, like from the business perspective, I can't say anything authoritative because we're still working this out. But I can give sort of a, a general um, general idea of how it how it often works. There are a few different models that investment co-ops use for the the mechanism to receive investment from members so one thing that would definitely happen assuming that we have this co-op model is you would first you would become a member and that would be purchasing a a minimum of one membership share and it's like any co-op that gives you um, a vote for electing the board um, and that that's your that's your ticket in whether you're an investor or an investee, um, you need to be a member in order for the co-op securities exemption to apply. Then there are varieties of structures. So, and right now what we're looking at is setting up uh, the business entity so that we can use any of these depending on the circumstance and how things unfold. So on SaltSpring with the Transition SaltSpring Enterprise Cooperative, they actually the the investors become members, but then the the investments themselves are loans. So what happens is when a business comes to the co-op and says, "I would like to, you know, I'd like to get a loan. I'd like to, I'd like you to invest in my project," then the co-op goes to their membership and says, "Hey, this is this is this project. This is cool for these reasons, um, and would you like to to invest in it?" And then they have just a loan agreement between the investor in the co-op and between the co-op and the investee. And then it's, it's sort of a back to back loan. So the, when the investee repays, then it goes back to the investors and there's a difference in interest rate percentage that allows the co-op to cover some of its costs. 
So the the rate of return for investors in these co-ops is typically pretty low um, because the, the primary purpose is to get money into um, businesses and social enterprises in the area, but they do they do typically give uh, a return of some like some of them are some of them are like two percent. Uh, some of them are higher than that. Um, some of them have different categories of investment. So somebody might be in- interested in you know, not not require interest, but they just want to see their money be put to use in the local you know, local projects. So what we're hoping to be able to do is to, and and this is speculative to some extent because we haven't really worked out the details of the structure, but. We, we may be able to offer different categories of investment depending on what you want, right? So you might be more, some, some investors might be more interested in just seeing things happen on the island, seeing social enterprises, seeing things that have positive social and ecological impacts and do cool stuff. Some of them might be uh, more interested in getting a financial return while supporting local businesses. So in the ideal scenario, I think we can provide opportunities for all of these. In terms of the timeline for return, that depends on the model to some extent. So in the case of Salt Spring, where they're doing back-to-back loans, those have their own term built in. So it depends on the loan. Um, A lot of co-ops will have a term of something like five years. So you would be able to to redeem your shares after five years. You can also reinvest them after five years. So uh, on, in some cases, the, the co-ops actually have different classes of shares that have different terms. That, but the, the main thing is that there's a, there is a, a minimum so that the co-op has a certain uh, reliability of the funding and they can they can make investments that they know you know they know how long they'll have that money for um and then the mechanism for providing returns also varies some co-ops use dividends so they will pay dividends to shareholders and then some of them like salt spring use loans in which case it's just an interest arrangement um or or some of them will have shares that change in value depending on the success of the investments so the short answer is that, that there are many versions of this, um, and we're hoping to be very flexible with what we set up for here, but we'll, we'll probably be doing uh, maybe one of these first, or we'll, we'll, we'll see how the, how the structure rolls out on Cortez. You got to start with putting your legs on one, putting your pants on one leg at a time. Um, I'm like, let's start them all. They sound <laughs> wonderful. Um, this is incredible. You started mentioning a little bit about some of the things that Sita uh, is also doing, along with uh, working on this community investment co-op to help get entrepreneurs ready to kind of get the community ready. Um, and at the beginning, I talked about this. Uh, re- a resilient business series, a resilient enterprise series that you've been doing. So can you tell us what else um, is going on right now and that, and how else people can get involved who are ready right now uh, to get involved with CETA? <laughs> Great. We'd like you to get involved. Um, so on the community investment co-op front, we have a webpage with a form there. 
you can you can fill it out. It's at cced.ca slash projects slash CIC. Um, so that will let you let us know what you might be interested in, um, whether you're a potential member, an investor, if you've got a business that you, you might be looking for financing, um, or if you just want to be involved in our working group, or if you have experience with, with investment funds, if you have legal experience, these kinds of things, um, super important for a co-op like this. Then on the business training side, we so I've I've been organizing this sort of pilot series of training events. It's been super fun um, because I get to get on a Zoom call with a bunch of Cortez people who are learning about something related to their business, and hear I get to hear what they're doing, which is so inspiring. Um, the last one was on branding, branding one hundred and one, um, and we heard from it was there's been about you know between 10 and a dozen people on most of these calls. So we did one on, we did one on um, branding. We did one on selling online for makers and artisans. We did one on bookkeeping. Um, And then we are next weekend on Saturday, the 27th, we're doing the final one of this series, which is business planning 101. And it's sort of the the big package um, of taking your business idea to a, a plan that you can confidently um, step into, whether that's for recruiting partners or, or getting financing or just having a, a roadmap to developing your business. So this one, we I haven't. It, it's a it's an interesting thing to to organize a business planning workshop for Cortez because there there are enormous numbers of business planning. Uh, trainings and courses and things but we have a very particular entrepreneurial uh, environment on Cortez that that I just couldn't quite see how most of the examples that I found would would be able to be transplanted to here so we are developing this um, within CETA with a bunch of mentors um, on island and off island to to kind of put together this little curriculum package um, and it's going to be exciting. I'm, I'm really, really excited to see, uh, who's, who's going to show up for this workshop and, you know, what the outcomes will be. And, um, I'm still pulling a few of the pieces together, but I'm hoping there's going to, it's going to include a panel of, of, um, business owners and experts as, as part of it. So that folks will have a chance to ask questions of people with, with a ton of experience, um, and it'll go through things like um, the who of your business and, and the why and what motivates you to do it and what, what's your product and what's your audience and what's your marketing plan. And then how do you wrap that all into kind of a, a roadmap? So it's going to be it's short for business planning process like this. It's going to pack a lot in. But the idea is it will give will give kind of a, a skeleton and and tools that you can then work with. And then we are part of this process of this pilot is to see who's who's there and what they need. So we've been sur- surveying participants and trying to get a sense of how can CETA be of service to folks who are ready to do things on the island. Um, so things get busy on Cortez during the summer, so we're not going to try and do too much for the next uh, couple of months once this event on the 27th has wrapped up but then come fall where the plan is to to roll out a more substantial 
uh, range of training offerings. So part of this is looking at who, who might be who might be interested to step up for the, the cohort, uh, the incubator. So exciting. I really appreciate uh, CETA and all you're doing with CETA. Uh, it's been fantastic having you in the studio today. It's about a million degrees in this little room where <laughs> we are really hot. <laughs> shoved to far corners trying to both give ourselves <laughs> six feet of space, <laughs> keeping the door closed so you don't have to listen to background sounds. So all this for you, our dear neighbors. Um, and this is a subject I have just been fascinated by. Thank you so much, Adam. For, for coming today to share with us and for all this work because I really see um, that we can have the future that we want for Cortez through a little bit more investment in this kind of way. Thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. And uh, it's exciting stuff. Yay. All right. Well, stay tuned. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. If you're just tuning in now, you can catch this wonderful show on how we're going to finance our local businesses um, in a mere few days on folku.ca. And next, we have Lonnie Taylor, who's also on the CETA board, who's going to be talking to us about what she's doing in her garden and some larger things that are happening with CETA in the food world. So don't go far from your radio. Uh, We'll put on some music. If you have any questions that you didn't get to ask before, you get to still call in 250-935-0200. Zero, zero.
Lacy black and lacy sells caresses to the lonely men she meets. Sticky twenties, bread and butter, the addiction rebate for her grief. The money keeps it clean like hospital cornered sheets the money seems clean he with weary cigarettes seeks He waits for love's epiphany, then slinks away with sadness on his cheek. Money keeps it clean, like hospital cornered sheep. It seems clean Hello, neighbor. You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, and on the web at CortezRadio.ca. It is hot in this little production room. So we are here just, we might be the only people sweating on Cortez or Quadra or the surrounding islands, but we are sweating for you, neighbor, because we like to bring you 
the most fresh, most new, most wonderful uh, community updates and events and people that we can. I'm really excited to have Lonnie Taylor in this hot little studio with me. Um, we decided we're going to do one of those little CKTZ promos. Uh, we're going to get Lonnie to do one about naked radio. <laughs> so you wouldn't know because it's on the radio. Um, all right. So Lonnie is going to talk to us and tell us a little bit about what she's doing in her garden and also how we're starting to redefine community gardens on Cortez. A lot of people have needed gardening space really quick. And Lonnie's been part of the solution trying to find spaces for people. And Sita's up to all sorts of exciting things in the food world. So Lonnie, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. Thank you. Thank you so much, Manda. And thank you for that lovely introduction. Um, <laughs> the garden and and flowers and fruit and, and nudity just seem to coincide sometimes. But seriously, be careful. There's a lot of thorns in the fruit that we enjoy here. Um, okay, jokes aside, um, I'm just thrilled about all the time I've had in my garden over the past couple of months during this uh, time where I've been encouraged to stay at home. And I have been reflecting on you know, how, how I got started and where I'm at now. And the plans have been unfolding well, and it's beautiful to see the results. So my garden is on its third summer, and I've, it's second year. And I had a plan to put in perennial flowers and fruits. That was the priority for me. I wanted a healthy insectary for all the fruit I wanted to grow, and I wanted to get those fruit trees in the ground ASAP. So that's been the goal, and it's gone pretty well. Within the first year, I put in peaches, a mulberry, grapes, figs, raspberries, golden raspberries, which I'd love to talk more about. They're awesome. Strawberries and black currant. And then in my second year, so over basically the past year, I've planted a male and female Arctic kiwi, rhubarb, a Utah sweet pomegranate, a male and female olive tree with edible dark olives. The star of Crimea is the female. Uh, blue and native elderberries, Thompson seedless grapes, and another purple grape for wine that's un unnamed, unknown, fig, and I have a potted lemon tree that's flowering and fruiting right now. Whoa. So... <laughs> It's gone well. Honestly, nothing has really failed at this point. Everything's still alive or actually looks like it's thriving. So I'm really excited to report that all those things are very growable here on Cortez. And, oh, yeah, my peach tree has 11 fruits on it. And I'm not the only one on the, on the block with peaches. I've seen other people with fruited peaches this year. So... Yeah, <laughs> I, 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 we don't have that much time, but I have so many questions because um, olive, uh, pomegranate, I have a pomegranate plant and I was told that we couldn't actually like wouldn't be warm enough here. So I've had it in a pot that I'm like babying and I'd really like to plant it in the ground. So I'm I are so you said your lemon was potted. So I'm going to assume that one's not in the ground. But is everything else, including the olive and the pomegranate, are those in the ground? Yes. Yes, they're near warm things, and that's important. 
The olive trees are in a very exposed south-facing part of the garden, and they're next to compost. Um, so there's a lot of heat radiating off that, and they seem pretty happy. And it kind of looks like they have something like fruit or flowers budding on them, but I have never watched an olive tree grow, so it's a very new experience for me. Um, the peach tree is right up against my house, and on the other side of that wall is a water heater. So that's, I think, helping and protecting it. Peach trees really like to be covered as well, um, or else the leaf curl is a big issue. Um, only apparently for kind of aesthetics, though, because I have heard that leaf curl doesn't actually affect the tree from fruiting, but that might be debatable. That's, yeah. Um, yeah, so all the fruit's going well. The mulberries are really exciting, and I don't see people growing mulberry trees here, but they grow as big as an oak tree. Oh, Amanda has one. Okay, nice. And there, I have an everbearing variety. Uh, it's an everbearing Illinois. It's purple. And I'm just dreaming of the day, similar to when I was in New York like three years ago, when mulberries were literally raining from the sky. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. As far as the perennial flowers go. Um, I have had a lot of success with nasturtiums, calendula, borage, and borage. Borage is my favorite. It is the most exotic, beautiful, nitrogen-fixing, um, insect-repelling edible flower. It's purple and blue and fuzzy, and the stalks and the leaves are also edible. If you steam them, I think that's a thing but I eat the flowers like nonstop in my salads and they self-seed really well as do calendula and nasturtium every part of the nasturtium is edible I personally love eating the flowers in my salads and the seeds if you pick them fresh are fantastic fermented as a caper and it's a perfect op option for your local salmon cold smoked blocks and fermented nasturtium capers it's my favorite combo so that's been really great having all those self-seeding flowers just do their thing there's no effort like once you drop those seeds in the ground they're off and that's something to be to to warn you about as well same thing with things like comfrey um and apparently marigolds but I have a hard time growing marigolds you, you want to know that these things self-seed, and that is a great thing if you're trying to put a bunch of beneficial flowers in, in an area. If you're trying to control it, I'd recommend potting things or hanging baskets, um, raised beds, or planting these flowers on the edges and corners of your garden so that you can control them a little bit. Um, but yeah, personally, I'm just like letting them go crazy, and I'm purposely spreading them into several different areas of my property so yeah um and perhaps if i harass you you'll give me a recipe that we'll put on the website for people who want to make their own um fermented nasturtium uh which is something seeds which is something i've done and and love and is a really easy way to start fermenting vegetables as well and you're going to tell us a little bit about some of the things happening around community gardens right now uh, and and what's going on with CETA? Yes. So on a grander scale, I over the past three months, I've been on the CERB, and I've been super focused on community work. And uh, working with CETA as a board member has been an uh, extremely stimulating experience as I have been researching food security and uh, 
brainstorming on creative solutions and sustainable enterprises that we could establish right here, right now on Cortez to utilize the already bountiful amounts of food growing and really uh, harness harness that bounty through preservation and storage um, and harvesting enterprises. So uh, the community garden, you know, concept is a lot different than you probably think. Um, In fact, there's not a whole lot of people like in relation to the amount of people on the island that are looking for a place outside of their home to garden. Um, It's more, it's usually those people that are looking for that have unstable housing situations. And that seems to be the much more important. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's the first thing to solve. Um, And once we solve that, in some cases, there's no need for community garden space on an individual level elsewhere than where you live. Now, what's we're discussing on a very cooperative level among several organizations and communities within Cortez is a, a much more high production, efficient community garden that's actually growing food on a scale that can feed our community, um, or at least a portion thereof as, as an uh, initial you know, attainable goal. Um, based on my research, this is a you know very big estimate. We might be growing twenty percent of the food um, that we eat right now on Cortez. So t- maybe twenty percent of what we're eating as a whole community is locally grown and or processed on island. Um, and that's actually really impressive compared to a lot of communities, especially in the Western world. That's actually probably really high. Um, but for Cortez and our, our um, you know, our culture and what seems to be a huge value on permaculture and our local farms and our local small businesses, we're not actually getting uh, what we could be from our local community if we were supporting local businesses and farm farms in in new innovative ways. So that's what we're exploring. And um, it's really important to nurture our small businesses. And when you realize most of them are focused or are centered around food in some way or another, either either in aquaculture or food production or food distribution or prepared food uh, services and hospitality. Those are all our major economic sources on the island. So it's a very important thing to focus on, especially in this very shifting dynamic world that we live in right now and always um, to to focus more on more sustainable economic enterprises versus seasonal ones, tourist-based ones, and also just economic models that are not sustainable for a small rural community. Um, so that's what Seed is really about, is focusing on our community from a holistic standpoint, focusing on basic needs being met first, uh, within the community. And once we see that, you'll see a much more thriving community and then we can focus on the really fun stuff like, um, you know, ecotourism. <laughs> so yeah, right now we are developing a food program called Efficient Local Food. I'm applying for multiple grants. We've gotten some funding so far. 
uh, but it, there's a long way to go. And I'm really excited to start inviting people to that conversation and developing committees, food tank, food think tanks, and uh, yeah, working groups. So that's the next step. I love it. And if people want to know more about this, I know you did an interview relatively recently. Did you talk about some of this stuff um, with uh, as with Cortez Currents at all? So I actually did a, an interview with Cortez Currents. It's been a, several months now since mm-hmm. Tara interviewed me, and there's been a lot of progress since then. So what what did you want me to well, uh, well so where I was going with that is that if people want to know more about how they can get involved in these uh the elf initiative I I I did catch that acronym I really like it if they if they want to learn more about this or get involved or see how this might lead to a business that they're thinking about and they might want to integrate with where do they go what do they do right now to to learn more Yes, I think the first step is to go to Sita's website. It's beautiful and new and full of very relevant and current information, um, including that business enterprise training series that Adam has been um, heading, and that's going really well, and that all that information is there. Um, information about our board and who we are, you can find that all out there. And if you want to get involved contact me directly if you're interested in efficient local food the the elf program um and and there's a lot of ways to get involved there's right now with the grant the number one priority is to acquire support letters from our partners and um small businesses from the community that are interested in in what we're doing and feel they could benefit from it and hopefully Everybody feels that way eventually once they get to know what we're doing. So if you have questions, please reach out. Um, small business owners are really busy right now in some cases or just really, really stressed out and occupied with, you know, a lot. And we're here to help. And we really want to hear what businesses are dealing with right now locally on the island. So if you haven't spoken to any board members from CETA uh, and you're really interested in having your voice heard, please reach out and we would love to talk. Um, We're looking for donations of any kind, and that includes volunteer advisors, uh, committee members, people that would like to be a part of a food think tank, uh, especially if you're in the food industry and have a lot of knowledge in that field. Um, We are looking for grant writing assistance as well. We have have an effort to pay um, a grant writer, and we're also supporting efforts for other Uh, organizations to do that. There might be a shared grant writer coming to Cortez, but uh, assistance is also really, really helpful for some of us novices like myself that are writing grants for the first time and just needing affirmation and helpful hints and and guidance as we, you know, create the pros around that. Um, On the the next step after that, you know, uh, with fiscal donations that can go to the Food Bank, Linnea Farm Society, the Cortez Foundation, especially if you're looking at a regular donation that you'd like to make on an annual basis, um, or FOCI or CETA, um, depending on really what your interest and focus is on and where you'd like to, you know, uh, lend your support fiscally. Um, And in the near future, we're going to start asking for donations and um, 
insight on how to acquire certain types of equipment, uh, including food preservation equipment and 